Oh, okay. Yeah. It's like when you're a eugenicist, but you have a live, laugh, love poster up and you're like, well. Welcome to You're Wrong About. I'm Sarah Marshall. And today we're telling you all about how to be normal or how that might be impossible. We are joined today by Heather Radke, author of Butts, A Backstory. And if you have a butt or love someone who does, then this is a fun book for you to check out. And we will give you a taste of the butt in our episode today. Over in our bonus episodes, we just put out an episode where I got to talk about Flowers in the Attic with Carmen Maria Machado, which is something a lot of you have requested over the years and which was really really lovely to do. You know how much I love a paperback. And our next bonus content for people subscribing on Patreon or Apple Plus is going to be a little concert video that we did of one of our spring live shows at Brooklyn's Bell House Theater. So you might have been there that night and maybe it'll look a little bit familiar to you or maybe you just had to settle for being there in spirit at the time and now you get to see it with your own eyeballs. And in it, you will see some bimbo history, some classic you're wrong about topics, some hot dogs. And the show is so special to me because it contains the talents of our frequent co-host, Jamie Loftus, who joined us on the tour, and also of our producer and in-house musical genius, Carolyn Kendrick, who held the whole show together with music. So yes, you will have feelings. It's a, it's a feelings forward offering, but that's what you expect from us. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for making it through another August with us. Let's talk about some butts with Heather. Welcome to You're Wrong About, the podcast where sometimes we just talk about butts and all their accompanying topics. And I know that because we are talking today with Heather Radke, author of Butts. That's the book. How are you, Heather? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm so great. I have been looking forward to this conversation. I have this um, marked in my calendar as the most normal girl in Cleveland. And I really think we're going to get to the bottom of some stuff. <laughs> Me too. I love the pun. Get to the bottom. And also the most normal girl in Cleveland is a good little teaser, I think, for this this conversation. And I'm so thrilled to be here. I'm such a big fan. And I'm really grateful that you had me on. Ah, I'm so happy that you wanted to come on. And I would love for you to I mean, you you have a bunch of different uh, things that you're doing in the world and topics that you're working with, but uh, I would love for you to tell us all about your book to start. Yeah, so uh, Butts is a cultural history of women's butts, basically, <laughs> and it, it, it's the scope is quite big. It goes back to, in some ways, like the dawn of humankind, but then it skips ahead to like 1800. Um, so we we miss a big chunk in there. But then I look at two centuries of art history and feminism and the construction of race and fashion and music and look mm-hmm. at all the things that the butt has meant or maybe not, probably not nearly all the things, but some of the things the butt has meant. All the things it's supported, including that champagne glass. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that champagne glass is very crucial to the story of the butt. <laughs> Uh, but today, I think we're going to talk just about a, like a little slice, and it's a very fun slice, uh, a favorite part of the book. A little slice of the butt. Exactly. 
And, and something you point out in kind of the opening pages of this book is that like there isn't a clinical term for butts that normal people use. Totally. Yeah. So there's sort of no correct term for butts. Basically, like everyone, no matter what they're saying, they're saying some kind of euphemism for this body part. Right. And that's so interesting, right? Because it's sort of like turtles all the way down. You know, there's no kind of like <laughs> stable um, word. And I think that it says so much about how we see them and how we feel about them. Because like, if you can't even quite name it properly, like, what does that say about like, what what else we're not taking seriously or being interested in hmm. or even like able to talk about it. Like obviously I've had so many conversations about butts over the last five years and there's always a part of the conversation where it's like we're laughing, there's like joking around and which I love, you know, I don't want to like make butts unfunny at all, but it is interesting <laughs> that like if you were doing a book about breasts, you wouldn't necessarily have to like make a bunch of boob jokes before you can like talk about how they're serious and important, you know? So it's, mm -hmm. it, it's interesting that there's this body part that is so important and holds so much symbolic meaning, but also like we don't even have a correct word for it. Like if you went to the doctor cause you had like a weird thing on your butt, it's not like you would probably say I have a weird thing on my butt. Whereas <laughs> if you had like a, a weird thing on your breast or on I don't know, any other body part, you would use a more sciency word. <laughs> right. You, like very few people go to the doctor and are like, doctor, there's a lump in my tit. Yeah, exactly. Some of us do, yeah. but not nearly as many. <laughs> exactly. So Well, and I feel like it's absolutely like a, the kind of backbone of the show to take very seriously things that people have, have not taken seriously over the years. And... Yeah, let, let's get into your little slice. Let's get into <laughs> it. Yeah, so I'm going to tell you today about a statue, or really a couple of statues, mm -hmm. that are called Norma and Norman. Mm -hmm. So Norman is spelled N-O-R-M-M-A-N, so all one word. <laughs> and you kind of maybe already get the... Norman. The yes, he's wearing... Yeah. He's a... a <laughs> normcore display model he's dressed like jerry seinfeld <laughs> yes well <laughs> if only <laughs> he's not dressed at all in fact <laughs> he's he's a statue these are two statues that were created in probably they, the creation started about 1943 they were sort of mm. first displayed in 1945 at the american museum of natural history so that's the one in new york that has the whale and all the dinosaurs the fun one the fun museum the fun. Although, talk about a, a deep, dark past. Oh, boy. Well, yeah. That is a haven of eugenics right there, yeah. <laughs> um, as so many of them were, to be fair to that particular one. Yeah. So this these statues were created by a gynecologist and sculptor who had kind of... We're off to a strong start. <laughs> I know. It's a fun combo. <laughs> like uh, they should all get paired up. So they had ar previously they had made a series of sculptures called the birthing series, which were mm. they sort of showed a woman's body gestating a baby in various mo. You know, like you, it's something you probably mm -hmm. have seen many times now, like where you see like different modes of fetal development. But it was probably oh, one yeah. of the earliest representations of that for a mass audience. Although, like you know, you could see that kind of thing in kind of like a science anomaly museum or in like the back corridors of a natural history museum. It wasn't something the public had seen much of. So mm -hmm. they were kind of like in this world of trying to like 
help the public see things that they felt like were important. So they did this right. thing called the birthing series, and then they started in on these statues called Norma and Norman. And before we get to the statues, I feel like it's so interesting to me that like depicting the human body has historically been pretty controversial, like not just in terms of nudity, but you know, the the laws against human dissection for so much of, of recent history. And like, I remember, I remember being struck as a kid, like, I think kids especially are fascinated by images of gestation, or at least I was because it's like, I don't know, it happened to you pretty recently. It's like <laughs> how I feel about grad school today. Um, <laughs> and, you know, being fascinated by the fact that I think Da Vinci was forbidden to actually be depicting dissections and, right. or, you know, and people of a certain age um, who grew up in Oregon will very likely remember, and it's still there, the like, I think it's called the Hall of Life. But if you remember going to oh, see sure. it as a kid, you remember it as the babies, because they have like a full half circle of babies being gestated from the embryonic through the full development of the fetus. And there is like almost kind of a rite of passage also for kids growing up to realize that these are in fact preserved fetuses. These are actual fetuses that at one mm -hmm. time were on their way to, to full development or some of them, some of them actually are. Right. I don't know. And I feel like I, I remember that, you know, that when the, we had these photos of fetal development in the 1960s that were like huge news at the time, that it was like mm -hmm. exciting and also distressing to people. Cause I feel like there is something about, I don't know, attending to the realities of the human body that is like once we accept that we know what it looks like for a baby to be developing, then like, like we now kind of take it for granted, but it feels like there was a time when that information rocked us like a hurricane in a really interesting way. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's, I mean, it's really, it's quite a wild thing to have figured out. Cause I think, I mean, this is like a little outside my primary area of expertise here, but just having done some research about miscarriage, actually, there's like a, mm -hmm. some interesting stuff about you know, of course, they hadn't looked into it very much about what was going on inside women when they were pregnant until the 19th century. And mm -hmm. then when they started to really realize that it, it obviously has tons of implications. I mean, now the images of a developing fetus are such, you know, it's like the hallmark of the anti-abortion people or those pictures. Oh, yeah. Or the pictures, you know, with a, of a fetus with a quarter for scale. And it's like, wow, I right. never thought... When I was thinking about reproductive justice, I never thought about how big a quarter is and all this. <laughs> I know, I know. But I think it's like, yeah, the ability to see that I think was huge for so many people. And mm -hmm. there's that like famous phrase like philology, ontology, something, something, where it's like the development of the fetus sort of echoes the development of human life, like the sort hmm. of evolutionary development of human life. Oh, right. Yeah. I forget what the phrase is. It's very famous. But that we all start off as cute little fish and then, you know, things take a turn. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then there's like little gills in there and then they go away. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I guess I don't know. All that's to say that I think I can already I can see that this is going to be a fraught story because we feel very fraught yes. about looking at the human body, despite all having them. That's probably why we're stressed out about it, actually. I answered my own question. Yeah, totally. Well, and also, like, there's another way to think about it, which is, like, the sculptures that we're going to talk about are, in some ways, they're just relatively... 
there just look like representations of the outside of a human body. Mm -hmm. And that too has this like really interesting history, the history of sculpture, the history of like, you know, the Venus, the sort of Greek man, the like, what are we trying to depict when we depict the human form? And these people had a very specific thing they were trying to do, but kind of all sculpture does to some extent. Hmm. Because like you're saying, representing the human body in any form is kind of fraught. You're making a set of choices about you know, race and gender expression and beauty and, you know, just even the pose you put a body in, it's sort of you're trying to communicate something. So I think definitely these people were, but I think they're also kind of working inside of a tradition of both like anatomy stuff, like the birthing series, but also like more traditional artistic sculpture. And they're kind of interestingly merging the two, which is kind of cool. Yeah. But also weird. Oh, I can't wait to hear about it. Yeah. And uh, this is um, totally uneventful time in American history. Otherwise, I'm sure there won't be any resonances. Yes, yes, exactly. Okay, so these two guys, they're men, not shocking, but they are, <laughs> decide that they're going to make these statues. And what they're trying to do is make statues that are the most normal, quote unquote, which is like the word to dissect and interrogate here, American people. Mm -hmm. They have an agenda. It's a very, you know, of its time agenda, which is that they're they're sort of trying to sell an idea of what a good body is Hmm. to people who might look like this and then procreate and make more people who look like this. So they're kind of I mean, they're eugenicists. This is another way of saying they're eugenicists. (laughs) But they're also, they're working in a kind of category of eugenics that some people call positive eugenics, which is to say, (laughs) rather than working on the the project of like sterilizing the bad people, they're like the quote unquote bad people. They're working on the project Mm -hmm. of like spurring the procreation of the so-called good people. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's like when you're a eugenicist, but you have a live, laugh, love poster up and you're like, (laughs) totally. They're like, we're not the ones. Although I'm sure they probably were also like perfectly fine with the sterilization that was rampant during this period of time. Mm -hmm. The kind of most famous positive eugenics project that a lot of them were doing was this thing called the Better Baby Contest. Oh, my God. Have you heard of those? God, maybe. But like, (laughs) there's so many weird baby contests. So yeah, tell tell me about these babies. So this is a thing where like at state fairs, particularly interestingly in the Midwest, because they were (laughs) the eugenicists thought that Midwestern people who were farmers would kind of respond to this type of good breeding vibes they were trying to get at wow. these things. And they're, they're like, well, they love livestock, so it makes sense. And then you go to the the state fair and you hear the call of suey, baby, baby, baby. <laughs> you got it. I mean, and basically it is like the top pig, but the top baby. So it's the most <laughs> eugenic baby. So people brought their babies and they were like judged and the best baby who was like the best according to the principles of eugenics. So like white and fit and, you know, robust and capable of making more babies, basically. It's very weird. Yeah. Wow. That, that's the winner. Oh, wow. Okay. Is there is there a preference for eye color? Do they want Aryan babies? Uh, it's interesting. I, I actually don't know that for sure. I wouldn't be surprised. But eugenicists, I think... It sort of depends on which moment in the eugenics movement, like their preference for Aryan specifically, as opposed to like 
Teutonic or whatever, you know, like mm. the way that they're willing to kind of split whiteness into its little minuscule parts knows no bounds. <laughs> they're very interested in hierarchies and, you know, so-called scientific organization. And they love to like come up with fake categories and then stick to them. But then like a few years later, change their fake categories. So of course, well, that keeps it interesting. Yeah, there's like really, I don't know, There, I want... I want a Ken Burns documentary about the Better Baby contest. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, there's some good books about it. You might like them. Oh, good. Okay. And I think the idea there was real, you know, it was both to show people that there were hierarchies and better. I mean, the name says it, right? That there's better babies and worse babies and better people and worse people. They should have the worst baby contest. (laughs) I I know. It's so sad. They're just little babies trying to trying to live their little baby lives and these uh, just leave them alone i know they're like in the winner of the worst baby colicky colin a blue ribbon (laughs) yeah colicky colin was probably also like jewish you know that's that's really the things that they're kind of trying to they're like this baby's head shape clearly proves he's destined to be a criminal you've got the ticket (laughs) that's the kind of stuff that they're trying to do i'm sure there was like a phrenology booth right next to the better baby booth at these places so yeah and for people who haven't had this joy phrenology crops up i mean my understanding is that it's the idea that like the shape of your skull and your face and your physical characteristics determine your character which obviously plugs in pretty nicely to anti-semitism and really any kind of racism but it, it like crops up everywhere once you know to look for it. And it's like really present in Jane Eyre. Like there's so much phrenology in Jane Eyre. I'm not kidding. She's always like Mr. Rochester's face shape was so romantic. Right. Isn't this the thing when they say that they have like a beautiful brow, which is something you read a lot in 19th century novels, that that's what they're referring to? I think. I think so. His brow proved to me that he was not going to be a criminal. Well, he was kind of a criminal, though, actually. He locked his... Yeah, the brow lied, didn't it, Jane? Yeah, it did. Well, and also just, you know, so the world of phrenology, the thing is that's interesting about that is in the 19th century, there was this interesting shift from trying to create racial categories, not only from skin color, but from things like head shape and nose shape and body shape. And interestingly, mm-hmm. the butt actually comes into that where of one of the ways that, that these kind of so-called racial scientists who were not scientists in the way that we think of them now, I mean, some of them actually were, it's a little complicated, but people who are doing this kind of categorization, they also included butt shape and size of butt as one of the ways that they like determined what racial category you were in and then also mm-hmm. what kind of moral you know issues you had because of your your various body shape mm. stuff so like obviously like a big butted woman was big buttedness was was linked with hypersexuality and there were these really kind of upsetting studies done on sex workers, white sex workers and black sex workers that sort of, quote unquote, proved that big butted women were more, more sexually, you know, available. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And so that's all part of this kind of bigger project of codifying the big butted black woman, which this starts in the 18th century as this mm-hmm. hypersexual kind of stereotype that we still live with today. Right. And it feels like, you know, not to get too far afield, but does it seem like a theme in this topic for you that like, 
if you're oppressing someone and one of your tools of oppression is sexual violence, then viewing them as hypersexual to the point of consent yeah. being irrelevant is like a, yet another convenient tactic of dehumanization. Absolutely. I mean, it's like almost, I mean, every scholar I talk to, plus like it's just so clear in the historical record that the reason they're doing this consciously or unconsciously is to justify raping enslaved women in the Americas. Mm-hmm. Like it's like a way to kind of, yeah, to make it so like these white men and white women too. white women are very complicit in this. They don't have to deal with mm-hmm. all the problems that have come because of the transatlantic slave trade and also the end of the transatlantic slave trade, because in the 19th century, after Britain bans the slave trade, and then eventually the U.S. does too, in the U.S. there's still this need to continue to create more slaves. And so this is like part of why it's very convenient to create and then like really double down on the stereotype of the hypersexual black woman. Yeah. So and I mean, that's just there's like very important scholars who have have made that very clear over the last 50 years. So yeah, it's very sad. And I think it's like important to see how like all these things kind of layer up on top of each other, Mm -hmm. like the Better Babies contest, like you can we can joke about it. It's totally funny and weird. But then it's like, you just keep peeling back the layers and you realize how you know, really what we're talking about are some of the like the biggest atrocities in human history. Right. You know, and that deciding what a body means and kind of the metaphors and qualities that we attribute to people with different bodies, which I think we all kind of do consciously, unconsciously, inadvertently a lot of the time. I think when we do that, we're, we are actually kind of participating in some level in this kind of centuries old ideas about bodies that we kind of don't even really think about that much Mm -hmm. when we do it, you know, like ideas about fatness, like there's great books about that. There's ideas about big breastedness, but big buttedness, like all these kinds of ideas that people with certain kinds of bodies are more feminine, Mm -hmm. more sexual, more beautiful, smarter, you know, that you're immediately in this world of phrenology and racial science and justifying these kind of atrocities of the 18th and 19th century. Yeah, and I think that one of the things that is apparent in in what you're saying and, and in our ability to understand the culture around us is that like everything splashes out and splashes everywhere, right? So you can look at the Better Baby contest and it's like, it's funny, but like it's also like you're saying, like a point of entry to all of the rest of it, all of the rot that is consuming you know, the the American brain. Totally. And how the way we see bodies and the destiny of different bodies, you know, allows us to ignore the humanity of the people that they are and that are inside of them. Because I think we have a body, but we also are a body and the soul lives in the body. And the body is the garden of the soul, to quote Tony Kushner. <laughs> yeah. And obviously also with eugenics, like, so there's this positive eugenics thing going on and positive, like as one scholar very rightly pointed out to like suggest that there's like some kind of strong delineation between the people who are, you know, running these institutions that are sterilizing disabled people and gay people and mm-hmm. poor people and people who, you know, supposedly have low IQs, that there's this distinction between those people doing that work and then these better babies people or, you know, the people I'm about to describe. They're all kind of one and the same. And but I also think it's important to just point out quickly that like eugenics and these ideas about categorizing bodies were, it was just like an immensely popular way of thinking. Like, 
I don't know, what is it, like the first five or six American presidents of the of the 20th century were all committed eugenicists. Mm-hmm. Every president of every major university was a eugenicist. Most science departments had a eugenics department. Like, these are not fringe theories. Like, right. most people thought them. And I think that's important because I, I just always think it's important to not separate ourselves too far from the past. Mm-hmm. It's easy to look back and be like, this is horrific, and it is horrific, but it was also... <laughs> you know, in some ways, like, we all would have been implicated in it if we had lived then. So I think that's worth pointing out, too. Right. And I I feel like this is a big part of understanding how to function in America today, that genocide has never quite been the fringy belief that we like to think that it's been um, among Americans. Totally. Yeah. So and these poor statues. I know. Right. So they're just okay. So These guys, Belsky and Dickinson, they created the birthing series. Then they created these statues. And like I said, the statues are depictions of the most normal American man and the most normal American woman, according to these two guys. And it's basically like the Better Babies contest, but for adults. Like They're sort of trying to show the public who they think should procreate more or less, you know, what a body should look like. That's like the quote unquote best body. But they're also scientists of their type. So like one thing about this period of time is it's a time that's like very interested in statistics Mm -hmm. and numbers. And so, you know, they're not like just reaching into their imagination and being like, this is what the most normal American man looks like. They want to use data to prove it. So for Norman, that's actually relatively easy because there had recently been a war. They actually used the statistics from World War One, the draft, mm. and from a few other places. So the Chicago World's Fair had this booth where they like measured men as they walked by, but didn't measure women. So they have all of those numbers. And then they have the early numbers from the Ivy League posture studies, which are their own weird thing <laughs> that you should probably do an episode about. Wow. Okay, so they have all this data about men's bodies, because whatever, when you go to the army, they measure you, you got to wear a uniform. So they can kind of make Norman relatively easily. But Norma proves quite difficult because there's no similar data set for American women. But then they find one, they look all around and they find this kind of amazing data set that's so interesting and so important. It was done by a woman named Ruth O'Brien in the 30s as part of the WPA. So she was a home economist. Another thing that I love to talk about, but I'll try not to talk about for too long. So home economics was one of the only fields in the first part of the 20th century where women scientists could kind of live and find a home. So that was true in the U.S. government. and It was true at most universities. And there were a lot of really interesting and important home economists. Ruth O'Brien was kind of a fraught home home ec lady. She got this job with the WPA and she goes out and she decides that there's a problem that she wants to solve. And it's a it's a problem that sort of continues to haunt us today, which is that clothing sizes don't really work for women. Mm. Mm-hmm. So she's, you know, at this point, there is some ready to wear fashion. And basically, like, there's no standardized clothing sizes. And to the extent that those sizes do exist, like nobody can find anything that fits them. So she's like, this is a problem for data to solve. Let's go solve it. I'm going to hire people through the WPA to go out and measure the women of America. So she hires these 
women all over the country. They're called measuring squads. It's very like fun, early 20th century vibes. I like how anytime you put a woman to work before 1950, you were like, give her a little outfit and a cute name and she'll enjoy it. You got to make it fun for the girls. I know. I know. Although I wish, I wish my job gave me a cute name and an outfit, but I don't get those things. <laughs> I know. Podcast Polly's. There you go. <laughs> I know. I know. So the measuring squads, they would go out and find women and they would have them like stand on a little like pedestal. They'd wear like cotton shorts and a little ban- bandeau bra. Is that what we call that thing? That's just kind of like a like tube that's around your your chest. Yeah, I think so. The tiny tube. Yeah. They took 58 measurements of these women and they also weighed them. They did 15,000 surveys. So that's a lot. They go all over the place, mm-hmm. all to different parts of America. This seems useful, right? Like I'm, I feel like I'm pro at this point in the story. It's Yeah. At this point, you're like, boy, that's a lot of data. They seem to be traveling far and wide. This, I mean, not that I'm a statistician, but this seems promising. We're talking about surveying more than a dozen people. I'm thrilled. Yeah, exactly. So here's the thing, though, is our friend, maybe not so good of a friend, Ruth, she decides to throw out 5,000 of the 15,000 surveys because they are surveys of non-white women. So we don't know a lot about what she meant by non-white women. It was at a time where that might have included like Italians and Jewish women also. Mm -hmm. But basically she had these people go out and measure everybody. And then her quote is, when it was found necessary for the sake of good feelings within a group to measure a few women other than the Caucasian race, this fact was entered under the remarks and then the schedule was later discarded. So basically, she only wanted the measurements of mm-hmm. white women, which is not so good. It's not good for many, many reasons. I mean, for her purposes, it's not good because she is throwing out a third of her data for this reason. And of course, non-white women are going to buy clothes, too. But it really speaks to the racial politics of the time that it was so simple and like almost like unjustified. Like when I talked to the archivist about it, I was like, but what did she say was the reason? Mm-hmm. Like, because that's that's a bonkers thing to do. Like, did she have some kind of like wacky justification? And the lady was like, no, she was just a racist. And I was like, oh, yeah, OK. Right. Like, that's just how it it was. Right. Because you're trying to figure out you're like, what's the logic here? And it's like the logic <laughs> is that this person was racist. And you're like, oh, yeah. Right. And it's not at a time when she has to kind of maneuver her racism. You know what I mean? She doesn't have to come up right. with some kind of like frosting over it. She's just kind of being like, no, obviously we only want the white women. So of course, when our friends Dickinson and Belsky find this data set, they are thrilled because not only has this woman provided them a data set to create Norma, but it's actually the exact kind of data set they want. They want to show what, you know, the most American, the most average, the most normal white woman looks like, not really what the average American looks Mm -hmm. like. So they use this data set to create Norma. And then there we have them, Norma and Norman, and they stand next to each other in the halls of the American Museum of Natural History. And this guy, Harry Shapiro, who's the head kind of curator of this exhibit and of anthropology in general at that museum, he writes this kind of glowing article in the the museum's magazine that where he talks about how what these statues are offering is this kind of perfection of the average, the sort of 
harmony of the normal. And it's it's really interesting because I think, at least for me, I think we live in a time now where, I don't know, to be called normal isn't exactly like the highest praise you could get, you know, but it was a time when normalness and averageness was seen as something that was, you know, a lot of people were striving for. And that the kind of needle that this group of people were trying to thread was to sort of offer up average and normal as this kind of like mm-hmm. zenith rather than a middle, if that makes sense. Totally. Well, and and honestly, like secretly in my heart of hearts, like I secretly all I want is to be normal. And I know that I'm not. Yeah. And I think that like the desire for normalcy which I'm sure we'll really talk about throughout. It's like, it feels connected to the idea that normalcy is, is something that exists in terms of like, you know, this, this like impossible just over the horizon thing of not dealing with the, all the emotional and mental and physical and material problems that all actual people deal with in one way or another. Totally. Totally. And I mean, it's also like a thing I started to think about a lot when I was working on this section is how when I say the word normal, I think, I guess I have a set of ideas about what that is. Like a normal person would be able to like shoot a basket into a hoop. So that's I feel abnormal that I can't. Mm -hmm. But then I'm like, if I actually were like thinking about it in some kind of statistical way, like is it true that like the average human can shoot a basketball into a hoop? I'm not sure that's true. So the idea of normal is like this ever shifting mm-hmm. thing that is reflecting what American culture is deciding is, you know, tolerable or correct. And I think it's so important to kind of unpack that and to understand that what, yeah, what these people are kind of trying to sell is this idea of normal according to them. And even as they're like obsessed with these averages, and they're taking these statistical means of all these measurements by Ruth O'Brien, they're not actually interested in the statistically average American person. Because I mean, that's very clear, they're throwing out this data, you know, Mm -hmm. Ruth O'Brien threw out that data, and they're so pleased to use that study. And they're dismissing huge parts of the population of America, and they don't even consider those people American because they're immigrants or they're first or second generation immigrants or they're not white. Right. So I think it's I just think one of the kind of opportunities of thinking about Norma and Norman is to think about what we mean when we say normal or average and Mm -hmm. what it offers and what it kind of leaves out, you know. Right. And I feel like the word normal in this case and still today feels like it's code for like desirable. Right. And the idea that we're only using data from white women because white women are the only women that are supposed to exist in America and everyone else like it. And it reminds me of the skew of positive eugenics where it's like we're not focusing on sterilizing people. Lord, no, we just want better babies. And it's like, but by implication, the better babies are going to force out the other babies. And and I think in in kind of an an equally insidious way, the collecting only data from white women, therefore means that like, we're not going to kill the other women, we're just going to ignore them to death. Right, exactly. Totally. Like, we're going to make sure they don't have any clothes that take their bodies into account. Because there's also an implication in that, that non-white women's bodies are profoundly different, which isn't true either. Well, white women have a row of spines protruding out of our vertebra. But, (laughs) you know, yeah. Exactly. (laughs) But I mean, I I think they also thought about this themselves. So Harry Shapiro, this curator guy, he had 
there's a couple of quotes that I think are worth sort of bringing into the fore from him. So he says, Norma and Norman, although they were designed to conform with the average adult before the onset of the ravages of age, <laughs> which is also great, nice. exhibit a harmony of proportion that seems far indeed from the usual or the average. Let us state it this way. The average American figure approaches a kind of perfection of bodily form and proportion. The average is excessively rare. So you kind of see here, like you see how he's situating it as like the average is the perfect. Right. The normal is the ideal, which is a little bit paradoxical, but I think it's like what you were just saying. It's how the normal is the sort of desired. That's ultimately kind of what we're we're trying to say. The most normal person right. is in the thing that we covet with a body that we would want to have for ourselves. Yeah. Well, right. And like it seems very possible that they could have gotten all this all these data and been like, well, the average woman has stretch marks and then been like, absolutely not. We are not including stretch marks. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, because the right, like the average woman probably has experienced the ravages of age. You know what I mean? You know, it was, a bit. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> I mean, because the average woman isn't 20 years old, probably. So... But right, it's like the icon of the normal, the saint right. normal. Exactly. So that is the sort of point of the statues, right? So Norma's up there next to Norman. She's white. She's straight. Like, I mean, I guess I assume she's straight because they like sort of, I always feel like there's something a little defensive about putting these two nude statues next to each other. Yeah. It's like, they're gonna have sex and babies, everybody. And know? they do every, yeah, every night when we leave the museum. <laughs> exactly. I mean, uh, like they're able-bodied, which is really worth, an, you know, it's important to say in this time because if there's anything that eugenicists are very anxious about, it's disability. Because also, you know, like the, we're, we're in a period of like, we're in our second world war in 30 years. Like the number of yep. disabled people being coming home, you know, who are disabled specifically because of service to their country, which is now, you know, also on the page of them not deserving to exist is, you know, I don't, I'm sure that it's not really any lower today, because the irony is so present. Right, right. Yeah. And I mean, they're probably less worried about those war injuries and much more worried about what they perceive to be genetic disability, because that's mm. what they're trying to prevent through mm. sterilization. Mm -hmm. But it's also, I think, important to remember, we're, t we're not talking about 1925, we're talking about 1945. Mm -hmm. Like, this is pretty late. It's later than most people think eugenics is as popular as it really was at this point mm -hmm. in time. But also, I just want to say these statues look really weird. I think they're really weird statues because they're kind of like, like, first of all, Norma's breasts are like somebody designed a statue of breasts and had never seen breasts before. <laughs> like, they're just kind of like, stuck on her little body like it's very strange okay, i'm gonna need you to show me these statues now <laughs> i think you can probably google them okay norman <laughs> wow yeah this is before the invention of breast implants but you really <laughs> would not guess that because they are it's like right it's like her they constructed her entire body and then we're like oh my god we forgot breasts and then just kind of stuck them on there and they don't have pubic hair. I don't know if you're... Well, no, weirdly, he does and she huh. doesn't. Of course. Then there's like the facial expression, which kind of... I don't know. It's These, these pictures for the listener, they're very kind of... Uh, I feel like they look like they're right out of Atlas Shrugged or something. You know what I mean? Yes. They have like 
very intense gazes. They're looking out from under like suspicious brows. Yeah. And also like worth pointing out, like Norma is like pretty muscular, you know, she's not super skinny, but on the other hand, she has visible ribs, which I truly cannot imagine was an aspect of any kind of statistical average at this time or ever. No, I mean, most of what you were seeing is a uh, is artistic imagination, because even if her proportions were average, right. which I guess we're just assuming that's true, it's like breast placement, perkiness, facial, right. you know, expression, muscularity. No, the average woman looks concerned. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I do actually believe that one. <laughs> yeah. And they're but they got their shoulders back. They look like they're doing the part of being in the army where yeah. you get yelled at. Yeah, exactly. They're in boot camp or something. Yeah. I don't have a lot of military knowledge. Yeah, they look like they're at boot camp. <laughs> and then his little, like, I feel like his little hairdo, I don't even know what to do with that. It looks very, like, Nazi youth to me, but I might just be reading that into it. Maybe it was a very popular haircut I mean, of the time. Yeah, maybe everyone in 1945 <laughs> looked like a Nazi youth, <laughs> if you think about it. So... Yeah, so I don't know. These are the statues. And Mm -hmm. they were up at the American Museum of Natural History for a a couple of months. And then they take a little turn Mm. and they go to the Cleveland Health Museum. So they head to the Midwest. Uh. And this museum is the first health and hygiene museum in, in America. And this kind of becomes a more popular form of museum over the next 20 or 30 years. A lot of these end up turning into science museums eventually. But... The guy who runs this museum, his name is Bruno Gebhard, and Mr. Gebhard was, in fact, a Nazi, and he well. came over to Cleveland f- from Germany. Now, I would say, I don't think, I feel like I'm not sure why this feels important, but I, my fact checker f- figured it out, so sometimes I feel like it's worth pointing mm-hmm. out that he was definitely a member of the Nazi party, and he was, but he did leave actually, because he felt like they had gone too far. So I feel like once you're on the Nazi train, there's really no use in splitting hairs. But I do think probably if he had been, you know, part of the inner circle of Hitler's world, he probably wouldn't have gotten a job in the Cleveland Museum of Health in 1945. But Hmm. he was just a minimal enough Nazi to be employed in in this capacity. (laughs) So he's pretty jazzed about Norma and Norman, I will say. Like he's... He sees these things as, you know, an important part of what he's trying to do in his new job. Wow. And I think it also points, you know, whatever. I just feel like you're starting to maybe get the vibe here a little bit. It's like these are popular statues that a lot of people come and look at. And also, like, the people who are doing the the behind-the-scenes work of these statues are pretty, you know, they're not great. It's not great how in bed with the eugenicists and the Nazis they are. It does feel very connected with kind of, I don't know, everything I know about this period. And also, you know, something about when you read early 20th century literature to early to mid, really any of it, but like really early to mid 20th century, like the Great Gatsby, you're like happily reading along and they're like blanking out (laughs) damn in hell. And then there's like a page full of the worst racial slurs imaginable. And you're like, Yes. Huh. You know, uh, but yeah, that like that this is a time in America where we're like, well, we're hiring this guy used to be a Nazi, but he wasn't an important Nazi. And it's like, oh, okay, Right. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, it's like we're fighting a war. I mean, it's I don't know. They're fighting a war against Germany. So I feel like 
I know he was in exile and it's maybe I'm maybe painting with too broad of a brush or something. But I, I do think it's sh- like you're saying, it shows how these lines that I think when we look at the past can sometimes feel really stark are actually much more blurry. And like we were all like the biggest sterilization project in the world before the Holocaust was in California. I mean, the way that the Nazis did their sterilization project was based on the California model. So I just think these, it's not to say it's the same or any kind of thing like that, but just that there is this kind of closeness that can feel uncomfortable, but I think is kind of worth exposing. And also the kind of, the way that it's also all a little jolly, which I'm about to tell you a little bit more about too, because I think there's a way that it's just kind of, I, I don't know, you, you sort of at least want it to feel like they knew they were doing something really bad, but I don't think that's what they thought they were doing. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so the Norma and Norman come to Cleveland and Bruno Gebhard, he's got this new job. He's really excited to get these statues and he wants to make a big deal about this acquisition. And so he decides to approach the Cleveland Plain Dealer, which is the big newspaper in Cleveland, and have... A contest Mm -hmm. where they're going to try to find the most normal girl in Cleveland. (laughs) They're going to try to find a woman who most closely matches or kind of is Norma, basically has the same measurements as Norma. Wow. And, you know, he thinks this will be a fun promotional opportunity for his statues and his museum. And also kind of like you can sort of see how it might start to fulfill the kind of intellectual and political interests of these eugenicists who are trying to sort of sort of show people like you too can be Norma you know like we want you if you're like Norma we want more of you Nazism is a good idea if you don't take it too (laughs) far yeah (laughs) so if they can sort of encourage all these Normas of Cleveland to think well of themselves and to see how they you know feel lauded and part of this sort of Americanness that the statues are trying to promote, that's great for them. That's kind of the point in some ways of Norma. Mm-hmm. So Gephard, you know, has come up with like what is actually like a very ingenious scheme for his promoting his his ideas about bodies and women and hierarchies. Uh, so for 10 days in September of 1945, uh, this one reporter, Josephine Robertson, who I sort of I ended up kind of feeling bad for her because as far as I could tell, she was the only woman on staff. And they, of course, gave her the Norma beat, you know. Oh, boy. She writes like so many articles about this. And it's just blanketing the newspaper for these 10 days in September, where it's like she interviews a priest to be like, what do you think about Norma or like a physical fitness instructor to be like, how can people get bodies more like Norma? Wow. But you know what else is happening in September of 1945? The bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, that's happening in August and September. So in basically between those bombings is when this is all going on, which it's just intense. I mean, just to sort of think about how the plane dealers using all this these column inches for this contest and why that might have been appealing mm-hmm. to people at this time when they're probably very sick of the war and they don't even understand what yeah. horrors their government is inflicting and it's kind of this really stark juxtaposition on just on the front of the newspaper where it's like bombs dropped Here's the take of Mr. Gym Teacher from <laughs> Cleveland High School. You know, it's like really 
I, I don't even know what to say about that. I think that's in to some extent how how it all works. Like on any given newspaper day, there's always right. a section that's like, here's a fun recipe to cook. Also, you know, everything is horrible. And I that's just what it is to live in the world to some extent. But right, that's what newspapers are. Right. So maybe I don't want I don't mean to make too big of a deal about it, but I, fi- I find it to be kind of stark. Oh, yeah. And also it says just helps to remind us about like what time we're talking about and yeah. And why maybe the idea of normal is actually so appealing. Like hmm. this was a time when things for a lot of years, for decades, had been really troubled. You know, people had lived through the Depression. They had lived through World War One. They'd lived through the Spanish flu. They'd lived through World War Two. And maybe the idea of something kind of stable and normal that they're being sold is actually quite appealing in a way that isn't true at every moment in history, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that if, you know, the story of American news is also the story of the weird stories that we chose to fixate on in times of crisis or times when our government was committing atrocities, you know, and that that's also part of the way we consume information that there's always going to be. I don't know. I would love to see like a history of the 20th century in terms of like the weird little stories that people fixated on in periods like this. Right. Like people sitting on flagpoles. And yeah, yeah, just it's very human to kind of need to not only look at the bombing of Hiroshima, but to also kind of wonder if you're the most normal girl in Cleveland, (laughs) you know, that that's we can't psychically live in that. Or how close to normal are you? Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, and that like in times of destruction beyond our control or comprehension, like it, what do we do now? We go off and buy a new ice cube tray or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because to some extent, what else can you do? Anyway, so there's this contest. There's this 10 days of coverage. The idea was that women across the city in the sort of Cuyahoga zone could send in their measurements and they it wasn't 38 it wasn't quite as many as were in that original study or 58 that were in that original study it was it was just a handful it was about 12 but 3,864 women submitted their measurements wow a thousand of them came the day before the end of the contest to the YWCA they came and went to like a fun measuring extravaganza and they had their measurements taken wow that's a lot of people it's like Almost 4,000 people entered this contest to see if they were the most normal girl in Cleveland. A surprising number of people are willing to be measured in public, I guess, is something we can learn from this. Yeah, although one of the things that was interesting about that Ruth O'Brien study is that she had to, like, skew it because older women wouldn't come to get measured. (laughs) She had to wait the data, which I kind of feel like... I really get mm-hmm. like I feel like the older I get, the least less likely I would be to to let some random ass person measure me in public. Yeah, that's I think that's a good that's a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> no need to to get measured in public. But the, all these women did, and then the forty closest they came to get measured again in public and to sort of parade around in front of a panel of judges. Wow, that included a reporter, a gym teacher, and a professor of anatomy. Weirdly, Josephine Robertson, who knew so much about it, didn't get to be the reporter on the panel. So I I, always, I felt sort of bad for her. I was like, just let her do something. Uh, Josephine, yeah. Yeah, so they're all trying to decide who's the, who's the most normal girl in Cleveland and who's the closest to Norma. And I don't know. I guess I wonder, like, what do you think unfolded? Do you think they could find a Norma who fit the exact specifications? 
No, because Norm is imaginary. I feel like even with like a few thousand people, you would end up with like somebody close to Norma. But I feel like you couldn't get because also Norma is, as you said, like a sort of fantasy sculpture. So yeah, exactly. So they can't they can't they do not they do not get a Norma. And they seem I mean, just based on these newspaper articles, they seem a little bit surprised what it's so funny that they thought they would find her out there they're like we invented this person so we're sure she exists it's practical magic rules it's how machine gun kelly was created i know i know they do seem surprised and it is funny because it's their own little thing that it's like the normal is excessively rare but they're like we were so disappointed we couldn't find our norma but they do find somebody who wins the contest, and her name is Martha Skidmore, and she's 23 years old, and she sells tickets at the movie theater, and she just quit her job as a gauge grinder. She's like a Rosie the Riveter. She's married. She's white. She likes to swim and dance and bowl. Those are her things. And then the description she gives of herself is... She's an average individual in all of her tastes and that nothing out of the ordinary has ever happened to her until the Norma search came along. That's very cute. So she's just like aggressively normal <laughs> for the time. And I tried to find her, actually. I worked really hard to try to find her. And I I found an obituary of the woman who I think mm-hmm. was her. And I couldn't track down any of her kids. She had quite a few kids. But I mean, I what I was really hoping is that something kind of really cool or interesting or I mean not to minimize her life in Mm -hmm. any way but that her normalness like could be complicated in some way and probably it could have been if I had talked to her because that's nobody's actually that normal when it comes down to it right it's like a fun thing to print in the paper but you know right and then as the is our I'm sure that our concept at this time anyway of normal is like a lack of trauma which I feel like we know now is Nuts, or maybe it wasn't, you know, because I wasn't around at the time, but it feels like there's a recognition that bad things can happen, but that if you are affected by them, then that is abnormal of you. Yeah, well, that's true. That's a really good point. And I mean, so many bad things were happening as we sort of have been alluding to this whole time is that there's, you know, there's a major war and her husband had just come back from war and who knows what was going on with him. And they had all lived through, you know, these atrocities of the early 20th century. So I guess maybe she was at least during this contest able to pretend that she was not psychically mm. affected by those mm, things. Right. But yeah, so she was the most normal girl in Cleveland and she won the contest. Congratulations, Martha. I know. I mean, I got interested in the story because I was so sure when I started doing my butts research that eugenicists must have had something to say about butts because they just had so much to say about all kinds of bodies. And I talked to a woman who's a historian of eugenics and who's doing really important research about sterilization in Michigan, actually. Mm -hmm. And she pointed me to these statues. And so like the statues aren't specifically about butts, although I will say it was very hard. It took a lot lot of doing to get a picture of the butts because they always were photographed from the front Mm -hmm. side. But eventually I found the, the reverse side. But like, you know, I think that the idea here is that Norma's butt, just like every other part of her body was sort of this was the eugenicist ideal of what a woman's body should look like. And Mm -hmm. for them, the ideal was the, you know, the ideal person to procreate and continue on the American mythos of femininity. So they weren't particularly interested in butts, the eugenicists, but they were really invested in these ideas of femininity and kind of female form. Hmm. 
How did you end up getting your butts picture, though? I'm so curious. Well, there's, you know, bless the archivists, the archivists at both the Cleveland Museum that holds the archives of what was then the Cleveland Health Museum. He dug up some old photographs of the statues that were photographed from behind. And then he also pointed me to the Harvard Science Museum archives where the statues are housed now. Mm. And those people actually took a photograph of, of the backside of the statues. But they just weren't photographed that much from the back. That's a fun day at work. You're like, look, you got to take a picture of this these statues, butts. it's important. It's for a book. I know. I know it's for this book. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, is it important? I think it is. Yeah. It's uh, gosh, it's a fascinating topic. It's I'm so happy there's a book about it written by you. And I, I mean, something that occurs to me is that I feel like a lot of people listening to this, myself included, as I get to listen to this conversation as we're having it kind of have had that thought for a long time at the back of their head of like, boy, I love to research stuff. I love to be curious. I love to like learn about kind of obscure forgotten bits of history or not even obscure bits because the bits out front and the idea of writing a whole book on on an object of fascination is, I don't know, it just like seems like something that I feel like a lot of people listening want maybe cautiously or determinedly or maybe they're realizing right now that it might be nice and uh do you have any advice for them i mean i think you should do it i feel like (laughs) i mean i was i worked in museums for a long time and i think basically every object and every in some ways the smaller the better the more obscure the better or maybe really butts aren't so much obscure because they're kind of everywhere in this one way yeah though it is hard to see them in a way (laughs) that's true and it's really (laughs) hard to see your own but they're kind of dismissed i guess is what i would say and i think that to me that was really one of the things that was super interesting about them is the sort of ubiquity but the lack of interest if that makes any sense yeah although there's quite a lot of interest there's not a lot of earnest interest and i'm a Uh, you know, for better or worse, I'm a very earnest person. So, and I also just think that the more you research any kind of topic, and you surely have this experience all the time, it's like, it just gets so, it gets more and more interesting. It's like never, there's sort of an endlessness to it that I think is very exciting. And then I think just as a piece of art for the world, I think people can really gravitate to that enthusiasm and the kind of like, the way that the obscure fact kind of turns over and becomes this moment of rethinking something that you you had never really thought about that hard or like what we're doing with where we've all used the word normal a hundred times in a day, but Mm -hmm. what do we really mean? And to have that opportunity to really think that through both as a maker and then as a reader, I think is a really fun and important thing to do. And I, I mean, there was a kind of fashion for a while, I think about 20 years ago to write books like about salt and cod and that kind of thing. And I I have a real Mm -hmm. fondness for that kind of book. And I think that hopefully there's like a new swath of that type of book that's that's coming to the fore that includes even more kind of investigation and from different ways of thinking about identity and history and archives and pop culture and all kinds of things. Yeah. I love that. Yes, I, I remember the Halcyon days of the salt book. It was it was massive, <laughs> yeah. you guys. It was massive. It was. And I feel like that, you know, I don't know, there's something that resonates with me about your work, specifically in terms of like 
looking at the little things that often even get unrecorded by history. Like we were talking at one point Mm -hmm. about how frustrating it is that if you want to watch like daytime talk shows, there isn't really an archive for that. There isn't really an archive for tabloids. Like some of the most seen, most touched, most experienced things in human life are the things that aren't preserved because we don't realize they're worthy of preservation. And also just the fact that I think to examine anything, any topic, any object, you know, life, whatever, super closely is to end up with kind of an understanding of, of like the atomic structure metaphorically, um, like the cultural atoms that make up so many other things, or at least the molecules, we can at least get down to that. (laughs) Yeah, I love I love you putting it that way. I think that's exactly right. And that I think that there's also something really helpful to do it through the lens of something fun or accessible, that that can be one of the best ways to find those molecular structures that are kind of fundamental to so many things. Because then I think people can kind of find their way into it. You know, I often have talked about this project as a Trojan horse project where it's like it's about butts, but it's it's really about, you know, racial stereotypes and the construction of whiteness and blackness. And it's about gender identity and it's about, you know, like neoliberalism in the 80s. (laughs) But it's also a book about butts and it's not like trying to trick you into eating your vegetables, I don't think. It's just that those things are embedded in every single part of our lives. And so anything you Mm -hmm. investigate, you're going to find histories of race, gender, class, and also, you know, human beings making decisions and trying their best. And, you know, it's like, you're going to find Martha Skidmore, who's just a lady who wanted to win a contest and, you know, worked at the movie theater and lived a life. And I think that that's, I find that to be kind of beautiful, ultimately. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, it's a it's a lovely way to live. I think researching and finding kind of an understanding of of your your humanity and the humanity that you share with others by looking really closely at, at something tiny. Mm-hmm. Totally. Heather Radke, you're the author of Butts, a backstory. Butts colon a backstory. In fact, it's thematic. Right. But where where else can we find your work? What are you up to? Um, so I am a contributing editor and reporter for Radiolab, which is a podcast out of WNYC. And I'm on Instagram, although kind of my social media, I'm sort of angsty about social media. So I'm sort of on and off of Instagram. <laughs> and I, I often post things on my website when I publish them because I'm also working on several writing projects right now. So and my website is just heatherradke.com. Amazing. I feel like there needs to be something to say in lieu of the social media plug if like you and the people you want to communicate with are like feeling iffy about social media as a whole at this point. Like what it as a whole, sorry. Um, but what if what if we started being like and uh, send me a big collective burst of energy at 10 a.m. Pacific time, August 18th. I'm really going to need it. Thank you. I just heard Tom Hanks talking about how he typewrites people letters. Like, I could take a Tom Hanks pen pal relationship. That sounds all right. Hey, if you're Tom Hanks and you're listening to this, feel free to write me a letter. (laughs) Write Heather a letter.
that's our episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being here. Thank you to our amazing guest, Heather Radke, this week. You can read her book, Butts, anywhere that fine butt books are sold. Thank you to Miranda Zickler for editing. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick for editing and producing. And thank you for being here. We'll see you in two weeks.